Bienvenidos and welcome to the Histories of Mexico. Episode 6, Tabasco, Part 4. Lord of the Hollow Stick. You are currently listening to native Zeltal musician Yakot Tatik Tomas, performing traditional Zeltal music local to the city of Oxchuk, Chiapas. Oxchuk means three knots in the Zeltal language, and it is the home of many of the modern-day members of this ancient tribe. We will talk a bit more about the region this song hails from later on in the episode, but for now we can just enjoy the blend of indigenous composition utilizing instruments introduced by the Europeans, such as the harp and the guitar, which have been added to the typical drum and flute elements of the musical style, and both feature prominently in modern Zeltal music. In our last two episodes, we went over the activities and culture of the Yokotanob, or Chontal Maya, as the descendants of the Puma made their way to the green land, rivers, and swamps of Tabasco. Today, we will begin by describing the ancient Zeltal and their fascinating origin theories, as well as the remaining archaeological sites in the area, something I fully intended to do in the last episode, but it seems my intentions are just never enough. We will then discuss some of the features of modern Zeltals and discuss some traditional celebrations practiced in their region. You may notice this episode is a bit longer than the last, and this is because I unfortunately fell a bit behind on my release schedule, so I decided to squeeze two episodes together and advance the story along faster at the same time. I will include a halfway point in case anyone prefers shorter-sized chunks of podcasting, but otherwise, I hope the long format is not scaring anyone away. So without further ado, on with the Zeltals. The origins of the Zeltals are about as mythical as one gets when it comes to origins. The Zeltals are referred to by our main source, Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes, as Los Botanide, who arrived on Tabascan shores in year 8 of the 1st century CE. It is here that we will have to suspend our logic for a moment, as the theories regarding the founder of this tribe, one so-called Votan, get more elaborate with each iteration. For it turns out Votan was believed to have been none other than Odin. You heard me right. That one-eyed Odin of Norse fame and glory. Easily the most famous raven-affiliated god to date. He was equally one of the most prominent gods throughout Northern Europe, emerging in the waning years of the Roman Empire and lasting into present day. He can be seen represented in countless forms of media, including movies, TV shows, video games, novels, and even a few compositions. Odin is just one of those figures everyone has heard about in one way or another. 
However, the origins of this Norse Allfather are as murky as the figure himself. The likeliest candidate for a precursor to Odin could be the much older Celtic and Germanic deity known as Wotan or Woden. This is where we also get the origins of the middle child of the week, Wednesday, literally translated as Woden's day. The theory goes that Woden was transformed into Odin as the language drifted through the centuries, but the word is believed to stem from the Proto-Germanic Wadans, which meant Lord of Frenzy or Leader of the Possessed and many early Germanic, Celtic, English, and Norse words would have the sounds of wod or od translate into words meaning crazy, possessed, and frantic, which can go a long way towards explaining why Norse Odin has over 170 recorded names in the sources. The early Woden might thus have been a god of extreme emotions, perhaps in relation to some frantic or frenzied experience common to the early Northern Europeans. Warfare might be the first activity that comes to mind, and indeed, Norse Odin would be associated as a war god, but would also gain connections to magic and knowledge. So the original concept of Woden as a frenzied war god was likely expanded on by the incoming generations and cultures whilst keeping a similar name. European intellectuals theorizing on the subject notice a link between this frenzied war god Woden to an obscure Mayan god of warfare named Votan. This lit a fire in these early thinkers, and the hunt was on to discover how deep this connection ran, and if it had anything to do with the magnificent structures they kept finding in the presumably primitive jungles of the Americas. The many theories on how this god of frenzy might have arrived on the Yucatan Peninsula would consume much of the academic thinking on the matter for nearly 200 years. Thus, this theory of a transcontinental Votan began bouncing around in the 1700s, when the ruins of Palenque were first discovered in 1773, then finally excavated by Spanish Captain Antonio del Rio in 1787. Palenque, one of the most impressive and important classical Mayan sites in Mexico, will be a prominent feature in today's episode, and its discovery in the highlands of northern Chiapas would kick off the Votan as an American Odin speculation party. Captain del Rio would set things off by proposing an association between Votan and Odin, and even went further to involve biblical stories of the Tower of Babel and Noah, and the legendary lost tribe that may have found its way into the Americas based on the findings of a local bishop. These ideas then grew in credibility when they were picked up and given serious consideration by the most famous geographer of his day, Alexander von Humboldt who spent considerable time living in and writing on the peoples and locations of Mexico. In his work on the matter, Vu de Cordillier, written in 1810, the distinguished geographer stated the following, quote, We have faced the special attention of our readers upon this Votan, or Woden, an American who appears in the same family with the Wodes or Odins of the Goths and the peoples of Celtic origin, since, according to the learned research of Sir William Jones, Odin and Buddha are probably the same person. It is curious to see the names of Bondovar, Vondesdag, and Votan, designated in India, Scandinavia, and Mexico, the day of a brief period. End quote. Well then, a lot to take in from that. Not only is Votan Odin, but also Buddha, and some fellow named Vundesdag from Scandinavia. 
It's safe to say whatever they were serving back then in the geography pubs must have made for some very interesting parties. Joking aside, this theory seems to have resonated during the late 18th and early 19th century with many historians and anthropologists each stepping up to the plate to take their own crack at the Botan origin mystery. Charles Etienne Brasier de Bourbourg, another French intellectual who specialized in Mesoamerican studies, proposed that Votan was an ancient Phoenician leader who migrated from the Middle East to the Mayan area, defeated a race called the Quinami, built Palenque, then established the fabled city of El Dorado, and a kingdom whose borders once covered all of Mexico and parts of the United States. Although an entertaining theory, the connections between Odin, Votan, and the foundings of Palenque may just have been in the minds of energetic historians and religious leaders. Perhaps in an effort to elevate the poor natives of his parish in rural Chiapas, one Bishop Núñez de Vega sought to establish a direct link to the Middle East in order to bring the American population closer to the source of their adopted religion by connecting them to Votan. A similar situation can be seen with the Church of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, and while I am not discrediting any religious text, a similarity can be seen with the idea of quasi-mythical figure or figures emerging from the Middle East to bring the word of a Christian god to the American inhabitants. Votan has also been associated with the legend of Atlantis, mostly in a work by Ignatius L. Donnelly called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, written in 1882. Here the assertion that Votan built Palenque is echoed, and Donnelly quotes Francisco Javier Clavijero, who had originally written on Bishop Vega and his Votan proclamations, quoting that Votan conducted seven families from Valum Votan to this continent and assigned lands to them. Valum Votan in this case is meant to reference Atlantis, and again we see a similarity with the ten lost tribes, or families of Israel, that ended up in the Americas according to some beliefs. A more modern dimension was added to the Votan legend by José Arguelles, an American New Age activist and writer who suggested in his book 2012, Return of Quetzalcoatl, that this Votan of legend was expected to return as Pakal Votan, who was a reincarnation of Pakal the Great, and would reestablish Valum Votan, that is, Atlantis, acting as a closer of the cycle, which was set to end in the year 2012. Sadly for the theory, 2012 came and went, and no apparent sign of this Pakal Votan was ever seen. But who is this Pakal the Great? Well, as one of the dominant figures of the mid to late classical period, he would become the 11th ruler to ascend the Palenquen throne in 615 CE and would go on to rule for 68 long and fruitful years, one of the longest standing Mayan monarchs in history. You will absolutely want to remember Pakal, as his name will appear in our story constantly during the classical, and his reign is one of the most well-documented time periods in the Mayan world. Sadly for the theorist, 2012 came and went, and there was no appearance of this foretold Pakal Botan, but the foundations of this legend have been shaky from the start. Furthermore, extensive decipherment of the massive collection of inscriptions from Palenque and related sites which again was an almost meticulously documented time period, has yielded very little connection between Votan, Odin, Atlantis, and Palenque 
in any capacity. The origins of these possibly debunked assertions seem to trace back to the Chapin Bishop Nunez de Vega, whom we have already mentioned. According to Mexican Jesuit priest and historian Francisco Javier Clavijero, writing in 1702, the Bishop de Vega de Chiapas had discovered an old manuscript in the language of the region made by the indigenous Indians themselves and decided to announce his discovery to the pueblos in his book, Synodal Constitutions, meant to stand as a text of religious bylaws and legends his congregation is meant to follow and revere. Within his book, Bishop Vega named a person, Botan, who had a God-given mandate to divide the land of Mexico amongst his followers, whose uncle had ordered him to build a tower to the heavens much like the Tower of Babel, and who had survived a flood sent by God much like Noah. According to Bishop Vega, this Votan founded the royal dynasty of Cham, likely a derivation of Chan, or snake, in Mayan, and established the kingdom of Nachan, or House of the Snake, on the Usamacinto River, extending to the Pacific coast through the Chiapan Highlands. This is likely referencing the ancient city of Palenque, whose rulers would constantly adopt the snake imagery and whose borders fell under those that were just described by Bishop de Vega. Sadly, the archaeological evidence does not seem to support the existence of Bishop Vega's mysterious manuscript linking Votan to the Old World, and as we have discussed in Episode 2, a transatlantic crossing seems highly unlikely when considering how people migrated from the Afro-Eurasian to the American continent during this early period. We shouldn't by any means take away from the validity of this figure to the people he was crafted for, however. To the Zeltal who still occupy the region, Votan is considered a cultural hero, not unlike Hercules or Prometheus to the Greeks, or King Arthur to the Celts, or Gilgamesh to the Mesopotamians. The name Votan is spoken with pride and reverence in the Zeltal villages and is even immortalized in the Zeltal calendar as one of their 20-day names. The Zeltal utilized the same calendar as the Maya, so we will go over how that calendar works in their dedicated episodes. But the Yucatec Mayan name for the same day as Botan in the Zeltal calendar was Akbal, which, by the by, meant Jaguar God of Darkness. So yeah, Mayan day names can get pretty metal. The best account for the actual origins of the Botanides and their early movements in Tabasco is that of our illustrious guide, Dr. Reyes. His recounting of the story likewise references the Bishop Vega account, as well as the Palenquen connection leading us to interpret the people he is speaking about as the Zeltals, who were more likely the originators of both Palenque and Tikal, another major Mayan city found in Guatemala. However, because he is using the Vega account, we must take what he says with a grain of salt. And ultimately, the truth will be hard to pin down, as it was likely lost in the great shuffle of the 8th and 9th century, when the Mayan world faced its great collapse, and many major cities and living centers mysteriously fell and were abandoned, opening the door for outside invaders to step into the power vacuums. Dr. Reyes labeled Votan el Señor del Palo Hueco, or the Lord of the Hollow Stick, who first established a settlement in the region of La Laguna de Terminos, which today sits in modern-day northern Campeche. From there, they moved up the Usamacinta River network until arriving at the location of modern-day Palenque, 
where Votan is said to have established his kingdom of Nachan. In this city, they would create special raised embankments called Ku, upon which they would build their homes, temples, observatories, and citadels to avoid the constant flooding. Eventually, they would begin building massive pyramids and structures, which were some of the most impressive of their day. The interesting thing to note is that their architecture centered almost exclusively on worked stone, rather than the typical clay or adobe used in other cities along the Usumacinta. This preference in building material further establishes the difference between the peoples who built Palenque and those of other contemporary sites of the classical age, sites which we will visit in this episode. The Zeltas were also wonderful stucco artists and left behind some magnificent works of both administrative and religious importance to their people. The stucco work, along with many stella reliefs, basically just large slabs of rock that were dedicated to stucco decorations, are an incredible source of information regarding religious events, harvest yields, dynastic lines, and major political events such as wars, alliances, or marriages. When I say that the classical was well documented, I am usually referring to these kind of stucco works, which were found in many Mayan cities built during the classical. In truth, the Zeltas are likely another branch of Mayan tribes which over the centuries have developed their own identity and culture. The linguistic similarities between the Zeltal and Yucatecan Mayans is a very big indicator of this shared heritage. They are the most likely descendants of the people who built Palenque for many reasons supported by the archaeological findings and translations of the inscriptions unearthed. However, there is no way of knowing for sure. There is no direct account of what happened to the inhabitants of Palenque after its collapse in the embers of the 9th century, and the survivors were likely too busy, you know, surviving, to write down anything that was going on. So we will likely never know for certain. The truth, as we have said so often, is likely in the middle, and there is undoubtedly something to the many connections between Votan, the Zeltal people, and the building of Palenque. European thinkers of the 17th and 18th century became obsessed with finding a link between foreign elements like Odin or Atlantis and the Maya, due to the level of sophistication in culture and architecture they kept finding in the jungles of Mexico and Guatemala. Given the not-so-subtle prejudices these enlightened intellectuals had on subjugated peoples living in European colonies, they refused to believe that the natives could have built such amazing structures on their own and must have received some outside help from some outside source. A properly European figure like Odin must have suited the sensibilities of these early archaeologists to the Americas. However, the inclusion of Votan in the Palenquen calendars is interesting since the calendars would have been used long before European and religious thinkers attempted to link this Votan mentioned in the calendar to a European figure. I believe the most likely possibility is that Votan was a Zeltal deity who just so happened to have a name similar to the Germanic deity of Wotan, a classic case of simple coincidence being read into too much by determined theorists who sought any support for their rather eccentric theories. A batch of more sober hypotheses regarding Votan began to emerge as a Mesoamerican archaeological renaissance began to sweep the intellectual community at the turn of the 19th century. This fresh batch of thinkers theorized that Votan may have been the Palenquen god of war, an elderly figure with no teeth due to his advanced age, 
typically depicted wearing black face paint. This god may have also been associated with the birth of drumming, an action associated with Mayan warfare, forming another link to the war god theory. While another proposed name for this deity was deciphered as Lord of the Horizontal Wooden Drum, further connecting him to the act itself. This also goes a long way to explaining why Dr. Reyes also suggested his name was the Lord of the Hollow Stick. Finally, his connection to the day name of Akbal may be further indication, as Akbal, if you remember, means Jaguar God of Darkness, and Votan would wear black face paint. So perhaps he too was this Jaguar God that was worshipped in the Yucatan. These origins seem much more likely in comparison to the European and religious thinkers that wrote on the subject. Thus, given all the evidence, I humbly believe, from my amateur perspective, that Votan and Wotan were simply just coincidentally similar and nothing more, and Votan is rather a Palenquen war god with no connections to Atlantis or other biblical stories. What we do know for certain is that neither Buddha nor Odin were present at the founding of the great city of Palenque, no matter how amazing that story might have been. Now since Palenque isn't located in Tabasco proper, we will not go into many details on the city itself. Instead, let's transition to a discussion of the ancient Zeltals and how they operated as a culture. Now, in contrast to the previous tribe we spoke about, the Chocos or Chontals, the ancient Zeltals were extravagant much like their cities, with the elites flaunting their riches and elegance, wearing pearl necklaces, rings and bracelets of gold and precious stones, luxurious feathers and fans, while living in large spacious houses which they adorned with artistically woven curtains, fine crafted rugs, soft armchairs, and large comfy beds, all signs of extreme wealth during these quote-unquote primitive times. All these items and luxuries were the fruits of the river trade networks that we have been speaking so much about, and were used extensively in this region to the immense benefit of the elites running the show. While the common folk wore more modest clothing, they nevertheless dressed themselves with flower headdresses, feathers, common but eye-catching shell and stone necklaces, and exquisitely embroidered belts with hanging points called maxtli. The priests, on the other hand, looked at what the elites were wearing and said, Hold my pozol. Their robes were resplendently woven linen, bordered with golden thread, covered in precious stones. Their extravagance extended to their altars, which were adorned in gold and precious polished stones, covered with flowers and shrouded in a mist of incense and refined perfume smoke. The ritual festivals and processions, too, were said to be fantastical, with all manner of strange and noisy instruments being played and the townsfolk and warriors in their Sunday best dancing along to the musicians. This festival attire would consist of different designs on the priest's robes, invoking religious figures and images. The warriors, too, would use ceremonial uniforms of brilliant colorings with the maxli, that embroidered belt we mentioned earlier, also adorned with special iconography representing the other tribes they had either conquered or were allied with. And, of course, all of this would be celebrated with the ever-present ball game as well. Another distinguishing feature of this tribe was their usage of copper, known as teputzle, 
which they would use to craft rings, nails, and axes of very high quality. Despite the availability of all the minerals necessary, the pre-Hispanics never managed to advance their craft to iron or bronze, likely due to a combination of whatever disasters led to the mine collapse disrupting the progress of the metallurgical craft, further fettered by the arrival of the Spanish. The conquistadors that arrived would find large caches of axes in Tabasco, and the polish was so fine on these pieces that they believed them initially to be made of pure gold, according to an account by Bernal Díaz del Castillo, one of Hernán Cortés's generals in the conquest of Mexico. The craftsmanship of their gold and silver pieces stands as a testament to the ability and skill of the ancient Zeltal craftsmen to this day. While the Zeltals displayed brilliant skill in metalworking, when it came to their pottery, the skills were a little dimmer, lacking the imaginative variety of colors, patterns, and designs that other tribes and cities of the time were producing. They made some of their utensils out of clay, but it was stone polishing that became their true calling. Considering the polished axe heads that fooled the Spanish, it appears the Zeltals were really good at polishing things. These included turquoise, emeralds, opals, jade, quartz, and any other precious stones they managed to import from far-off lands through the Usamacinta trade networks they ruled. The Zeltals also utilized a calendar system known as the Zolkin, which was sacred to the Yucatec Mayans in the Yucatan, and the Quiche Mayans, which resided in the highlands of Guatemala. The calendar is not divided into months, rather it is made from a succession of 20 glyph days, known as Katuns. Cal meaning 20, and Tun meaning stone. These glyphs would be combined with the numbers 1 through 13 to produce 260 unique days. For example, one Votan would not repeat for 260 days having to go through 13 Votan before landing on one Votan once again. This length also matches the nine cycles of the moon, likewise the gestation period of humans, as well as other natural cycles which the Mayans were very obsessed with, such as the movement of the sun or the growing cycle of corn. This calendar has also been found in other contemporary kingdoms to Palenque, including Copan, found in Quintana Roo, and Tortuguero, located down the river from Palenque, both of whom the Zeltals would have had extensive dealings with. The writing system of the Zeltals was far more complicated and made the calendar system seem simple by comparison. This system had no alphabet, nor were their hieroglyphs phonetic or figurative, but rather ideographic, which is defined as something that uses a symbol to describe it without a word or sound attached. The best example of an ideographic system you might be familiar with is the Roman numeral system, wherein two parallel lines are meant to represent the number two, rather than a word or sound, as most written languages tend to do. This rigidness in writing rendered the language highly complex to read, forcing the reader to have memorized hundreds, perhaps thousands, of different symbols in order to fully understand the displayed sentence or paragraph. Nigh impenetrable to outsiders, and difficult even to its own people, the script was likely designed in order to act as a barrier of entry into the priesthood and other politically relevant social classes. The Zeltals, according to Dr. Diogenes, had warrior spirits, but were not ferocious, 
meaning they did not participate in human sacrifice, despite the assertion by some scholars of his time. Regarding the subject of death, the Zeltal deceased would be entombed in a burial mound known as a menhir, generally placed in a squatting position, and in the case of the wealthy, often buried within a large clay jar. Inside the menhirs would be placed the deceased's favorite amulets, trinkets, and possessions, along with animals, supplies, and food for their journey through the underworld. This practice of sending the dead off with food for the journey is one we saw with the Chocos as well, and can still be seen in contemporary times with the Day of the Dead celebrations and the practice of bringing the deceased's favorite dish to their gravesite. These funerary urn practices would be disseminated into some of the cities they conquered, such as Comalcalco, which we will talk about later in the episode. Life in the Zetzal cosmological belief, on the other hand, began with the sky and the earth joined together as one sphere, with the upper half known as the blue gourd, representing the sky, clouds, stars, and the heavens. Meanwhile, the green bowl, represented by the bottom half of this divine sphere, embodied all the features of the earth, that is the land, sea, forests, islands, rivers, and valleys. Born from the conjunction of these two entities, blue heaven and green earth, came the sacred fox, the sacred coyote, and the sacred white boar who threatened the safety of the first humans. And from the heart or kush of the sky, earth, lake, and sea was born the breath of all life that animates the being, the breath of the sea, the breath of the wind, the breath of the earth, so on and so forth. This heart or breath, known as vuk or kush, represented the essence of existence and is the same force that moves the celestial bodies in the heavens, gives strength and vitality to all living beings, and provides the basis for reasoning, logic, and love in the human experience. This concept of the heart and kush is extremely important to the Zeltal people and form the basis of their early philosophies and material religions. Every town and city had their preferred deity or totem whom they displayed deep reverence to. The gods they held were the characters from their cosmology, including Hun Ahpu Vuk, the fox god, Hun Apu Utyu, the coyote god, Zaki Nimi Zis, the great white boar god, and the gods representing the various hearts and breaths of natural features, such as Vush Cho, heart or spirit of the lake, Vush Palo, breath of the sea, Vush Ka, breath of the heavens, and Vush Ulem, or breath of the earth. The two halves of the divine sphere were also worshipped, represented by Arrosha Lak, or the blue gourd, representing the heavens, and Arrosha Sel, the green bowl, which represented the earth. We can see a very big similarity between the gods worshipped by the Chontal and the Zetzals, in that some corresponded to the physical world, while others represented a more spiritual or esoteric world. This Kush is a very similar concept to the idea of Tlapokwa Tlotalema, whom we encountered in the previous episode. The Zeltals also recognized and feared the gods of storms, which they collectively called Urakan, a name we have encountered before when discussing the Chontal and translates into modern Spanish as the word for hurricane. Urakan was divided into several gods that each represented a different aspect of a hurricane. Cacalca Huracán was the thunder. 
Chipa Huracan was the lightning, and Rosha Kakulha was known as the green ray, likely a reference to the real-life weather phenomenon of green lightning, which is said to precede a particularly strong thunderstorm or even tornado. This refraction of light is caused by the clouds that form during storms, which bend the light of the sun, and if a person is viewing the light from the right angle, it can gain the appearance of being green. All these gods represented a similar deity, a wrathful god who even the other gods feared for his violent and unpredictable storms and outbursts. Huracan is surprisingly not of Mayan origin either. As with maize, the origin of the word actually comes from the Taino of the Caribbean islands. They have one of the earliest records of a god named Huracan, and this is likely the origin of the name. The name itself means Ura, or one and single, and Khan, which means leg. So his name literally translates to the one-legged or he with the single leg. And perhaps this was the reason he was always so hopping mad. Urakan represents our first foray into the greater pantheon that was worshipped by the Mayans. These deities have their counterparts in other cultures we will discuss. For example, the Mayans in the Yucatan Peninsula would call this storm god Uku-ka. The central Mexica and Nahua would have Tlaloc. The Totonacos, another tribe in the central Mexican valley, had Tajin, while the Oaxacans in the south adopted the name Caquijo. We will also see other tribes worship the same deities, but perhaps including different aspects of them, as we will see when we discuss the Maya who built and resided in Comalcalco. It is also important to add that Huracan and Chac were different gods, given that Huracan was a violent storm god, while Chac represented the life-giving rains that watered the crops and provided food that fed the Mayans. One was feared, the other was revered, but both were worshipped. The Zeltal would also worship the sun, represented by the deity known as Kinich Ahua along with other gods that represented meteorological phenomenons they could not easily explain, such as Cabracan, god of earthquakes, and Chiracan, god of volcanic eruptions. It appears that another highly revered creation god in Palenque was that of a great cosmic bird, Itzamye. The word Itzam we will explore later in the episode, but here let's speculate on the possibility that this bird's appearance was inspired by the Palenquen parrot, also known as a macaw, due to the fact that a macaw is also known as a K. And if European thinkers can assume Votan means Wotan, why can't I assume Ye means K? Admittedly, that may be a very weak argument, but there is little doubt that this Itzam Ye wasn't inspired by the early Mayan interactions with a macaw as the scarlet macaw is one of the largest of all parrots, and in my humble opinion, one of the most majestic looking of all birds. Some of the earliest stucco sculptures found in the Mayan world are those found at the site of Nakab in the Yucatan, and some of those sculptures are of this Itzamye figure. So it was not exclusively a Palenquen deity, but rather a pervasive figure in the Mayan collective psyche. Of the numerous depictions made of it, one of the most prominent is seen featured in the Cruz de Palenque, a large and important stella depicting offerings from priests being presented to this Itzamye bird figure. The macaw feathers were likewise reserved for elites and the royal family, 
and were of the most highly prized commodities within the Mayan economy. The Zeltal also revered other animals, such as the bat, known as Ho, the tapir, called Tsimin, and believed the owl or the Takurubamong to be a portent of evil forces, and thus was revered but not worshipped, but rather feared and avoided. A variety of other plants and animal deities were also worshipped in the smaller and more remote villages of the Zeltal and Greater Mayan world. I believe now is a good time to zoom out and take stock of the landscape now that the Zeltals have established one of the most important and influential Mayan sites at Palenque, and it would serve us well to understand how some of their contemporary sites in Tabasco looked, operated, and interacted with one another, and how Palenque came to muck about with nearly all of them in one way or another. Another important thing to keep in mind is our time period. I may have made things a tad confusing with the order I wrote and released these episodes, as I foolishly put the post-classical events of the wars between Mayapan and Chichen Itza before the classical events we will cover today. I will try to avoid these confusing orderings in the future, but I did it with the intention of following the narrative of one tribe at a time, and the Chontal I felt just had to go first, since Potonchan shows up much more in the post-classical and arrival of the Spanish. I will try my best to fix these possible issues with the show going forward, but I do need feedback from you to know if they hinder or help. So please let me know how bad I may have confused everyone, or if you're just enjoying the ride and trust I will tie it all up neatly at the end like I have promised. Not to make things any more confusing, but these three time periods, that is the pre-classical, which at times can also be referred to as the formative, the classical, and the post-classical, are each divided into three further classifications of early, middle, and late periods. So 1600 BCE and the approximate birth of the Olmecs would be considered the early formative. The events of the Tetihuacanos fleeing their city in central Mexico and arriving in the Yucatan around 550 CE would have fallen under the mid-classical. And the war between the Cocomes of Mayapan and the Tutulxihues of Uxmal and Mani, which broke out in 1228 CE, might be considered to have started in the mid-post-classical and ended in 1448 CE, the late post-classical. I have been avoiding using these naming conventions because they tend to be a bit confusing at first encounter, and are not exact with some sources claiming late classical, while others might consider the same date early post-classical and we simply don't have time for all that nitpicking. We should leave that to the eggheads. However, it will help frame our stories a bit better as we start encountering more and more tribes and attempt to place them along our growing timeline, so I want to begin introducing the concept and thought this the best time to do so. There is one date in particular you should begin memorizing, and that is the approximate date of the Mayan collapse of 800 CE to 900 CE. This event would come to define the age it ended. Before the collapse, we see one kind of Mayan world, and after the collapse, the entire board is upended. New political lines are drawn, and the culture is reinvented and infused with elements of outside cultures moving in, resulting in brand new Mayan flavors. By remembering this date, you can begin to automatically place the tribes on either side of the collapse and begin putting together the massively confusing timeline that is the Mayan world. We will attempt to further navigate this complex world by describing the Mayan archaeological zones found in Tabasco.
It is clear by the archaeological evidence and our own discussions that the abundance of rivers and their strategic importance in relation to trade meant that many pre-Columbian cultures made their homes in these lowland river plains, many of whom we have already met. It is along these many rivers that we can find a number of the Mayan archaeological sites to visit within the state. We have already mentioned the Olmec site of La Venta, and today we will be covering the classical Mayan sites of Tabasco that followed, beginning with the most important, Comalcalco. The municipality of Comalcalco, to the east of Huimanguillo, and La Venta, holds the Mayan site of the same name, which also lies along the banks of the Grijalva and south of the Laguna de Mecuacan, which sits along the Gulf of Mexico. Located an hour north of the capital, the site was originally called Hoichan by the original Mayan inhabitants, which means rounded or knotted sky. However, the Comalcalcans abandoned the site after the Mayan collapse, and by the time the Nahuatl arrived in the region centuries later, all they discovered were its abandoned ruins. Like we recounted in the previous episode, this caused confusion among the Nahua, who had not encountered extensive brick building, and thus had no word for a brick-laid structure. As a result, they selected the words komali, meaning komal, kali for house, and ko for place, combined into komal kal ko translated roughly to place of the house of the comales, due to the comal being the closest word they had for something made out of fired clay. It was again discovered by French explorer Désiré Charnay in September 1880, but it would not be excavated and surveyed extensively until 1966 by Roman Piña Chan and George F. Andrews. It stood as the westernmost Mayan city, one of the furthest reaches of the Mayan world, although its culture and artistic influence would travel much further than this point. The most important feature about this site is its adobe-style brick construction, which are found in other Mayan sites, but none have been reconstructed as thoroughly as Comalcalco, giving us the best representation of how the great city might have looked during its splendor. In 2011, INA, or the National Institute of Anthropology and History of Mexico, announced what they believed was the discovery of a Mayan cemetery, uncovering 116 burials dated to over a thousand years ago. They were discovered within a 220 square meter or 2,360 square foot earthen mound located along the peripheries of the site. They discovered 66 of the bodies placed inside funerary urns, similar to the way Palenquen burials were found and even discovered in what can best be described as the Menhir burial mounds that the Zeltas engaged in. The remains of the 50 other bodies were arrayed around the urned 66, leading researchers to believe them to be of the elite social class, while the 50 surrounding them might be their attendants. The occasional cranial deformations found among the 66 urned skulls and the dental accessories they sported, such as jade and other precious stones affixed to their teeth, further confirmed this theory on their social standing in the community. Twenty-eight of these burials were found in a perfect state of preservation due to the two-meter or six-and-a-half-foot depth at which they were buried, and their encasement in a ground conch and oyster shell lime mixed with water to form a type of paste that covered the body and adhered itself to the bones of the deceased resulting in a near-perfect preservation of their remains. All the urns were covered with fired clay, 
and it seems the covering occurred in the burial site, as we can also see three sets of closed ovens sitting on top of a layer of oyster shells. These may have been the very ones used to fire the coverings for these honored final resting places. Scattered among the bodies, the archaeologist also recovered whistles, sonajas, and rattles made of clay and shaped to represent animal and human faces, dozens of knives, blades, polished flint and obsidian spear points, metates or mealing stones used to grind corn and other grains or seeds, and over 70,000 tepalcates or cup-like vessels made of clay, along with a complete dog skeleton. All these funerary items had religious significance to the community, and the dog would even come to represent a companion on the journey through the underworld. The Mayans would not be the only ones to believe in an afterlife companion. We can see this pre-Hispanic custom best represented in the Disney movie Coco, with the main character Miguel's Alebrije assisting him as he traverses the underworld in search of his dead relatives. Alebrijes were invented in modern times, but they were a continuation of a pre-Hispanic belief, which was likely going on long before this evidence was left behind for us to find. The Comalcalcans differed from their neighboring Chocos in many ways, and here we see just one of them. The Chocos would bury their dead in nature, in a grove sitting upright with the only thing differentiating a noble's grave from a commoner's grave being the mound of rocks that may have been located above ground. Things were much more stratified in Comalcalco, it seems, possibly a byproduct of the size it reached during its golden age, or likely a result of the cultural dealings it had with its Mayan contemporaries. The Chocos, it seemed, were much more concerned with their forests and jungles, while the Comalcalcans might have been more worried about keeping their multitude of people in line and projecting their power to their aggressive Mayan neighbors while protecting their vital trade routes. In the same year of 2011, Ina also put on display the ladrillo, or brick, de Comalcalco. Upon it was discovered an inscription of the famous date the Maya set as the end of their cyclical calendar, oftentimes mistakenly interpreted as their predicted date for the end of the world, on the 21st of December, 2012. We will talk more about the Mayan calendar system and the incorrect interpretation of some of their dates, but the brick is on full display along with many other artifacts and inscriptions all found at the museum attached to the site. The site would see inhabitation as early as the formative by small fishing or cultivating tribes who would utilize natural materials such as earth, wood, and palm leaves to build their homes. By 600 BCE, there would be a well-structured population ending the site's first period of construction and growth with stone buildings replacing the earthen ones. Its second period would be initiated by the Mayans in 250 CE, considered the end of the early classical, when they began constructing with their adobe bricks. The bricks were laid with the mortar mixture of sand, water, and thousands of ground-up oyster shells brought from the nearby Laguna de Mecuacan to create a lime. This brick-and-mortar technique would be the key to building the monuments that remain to this day and set off the second age of habitation in Comalcalco lasting from 550 CE to about 900 CE, the time of the Mayan collapse. The Comalcalcans themselves appear to be a mix of the Chontal, various Mayan ethnicities running around, likely some Zeltal and Sotzil mixed in with some Tetihuacanos and other migrating groups. 
the ethnic identities in the classical really boiled down to city identity. So while the Zeltas likely built Palenque during the classical, we would simply call them Palenquenos, since there were also Zeltas likely in Tikal who were doing their own thing worried about Tikal business. The blending of these city-states can best be compared to those of ancient Greece. There, the people may all be considered Greek, but we also talk about Athenians, Thebians, and Corinthians, which all had their own political system, Greek gods they worshipped over others, and distinct cultural and artistic styles. So too would the Mayan world develop during the classical, and keeping track of all these city-states is a massive endeavor I will gladly undertake for you, my dear listener. So let's explore the site of Comalcalco and some of its still standing features to get a feel for the city, holding an impressive 432 identified structures, which includes administrative buildings, residential and elite dwellings, ceremonially functional buildings such as the Pibnaz, a ballgame court, nine temples, and three main complexes, the North Plaza, the Grand Acropolis, and the East Acropolis. Hoichan comprised a total of seven square kilometers, or two and a half square miles, with the administrative buildings sitting atop a natural incline surrounded by smaller structures. Its age of splendor was during the Middle and Late Classical, based on the discovery of the city's glyphs, which were incised into small clay bricks, with the earliest dated to the 10th of August, 561 CE, and the last corresponding to the 7th of March, 814 CE giving us an idea of the window of time people occupied and thrived in Comalcalco. This city of the knotted sky is also important for two reasons. Firstly, it is one of the best preserved and reconstructed sites that utilized a brick-laying method, which proved better at surviving the years of wear and tear in the tropical Tabascan climate. The second is that Comalcalco produced a glyph dated to the 20th of December, 649 CE which indicated that the city fell to its enemies and was forced to begin adopting its new ruler's glyph, the one we see inscribed in 649, the glyph belonging to the kingdom of Bacal, the name most associated with the city of Palenque, hinting at a turbulent history and interaction with its neighbors. Let's continue to explore some of the city's features and then move on to talk about some of the historical events it was involved in. Of the great complexes built in Comalcalco during the Classical, only three have survived, including the North Plaza, the East Acropolis, and the Grand Acropolis. Beginning with the North Plaza, which had a rectangular enclosure aligned with the long side running east to west, while the northern and southern edges were bordered by raised terraces. Here we find a collection of buildings with three small altars placed in its center, and a large brick pyramid which towers over the rest of the plaza known as Temple One, on the western edge. This four-sided construction rises 20 meters or 66 feet into the air and is made up of 10 tiers with slanted sides and narrow ledges. The topmost three tiers are decorated with stucco artwork and appear to be constructed much later and after the previous seven tiers had already been erected. As a reminder, stucco is the name given to the mixture of a grainy material and water that is artistically sculpted on buildings for both decorative and religious purposes. Many Mayan sites still have some kind of stucco work to admire, and each city is likely to have a unique style all its own. 
It is thanks to this stucco work that we have many of the dates and events that happened this far into the past. There are a total of nine temples found in Comalcalco, with Temple 1 being the tallest and Temples 5 and 8 too damaged to safely enter. Temple 1 looms high over the rest of the North Plaza. Its entrance and staircase open up to it, making the ascent and descent visible from any point of the plaza. Also found in the Northern Plaza are the smaller Temples 2 and 3, along with their associated structures. Within these temples are a large number of the site's most important tablet inscriptions and funerary bone objects that have been unearthed. They sit to either side of Temple 1 on the western corners of the North Plaza and are much shorter than Temple 1, even before Temple 1 received its stuccoed three-tiered upgrade, elevating its status likely in accordance with some major event. At the top of Temple 1, we see a double vaulted structure with three entrances leading into an inner sanctuary where a built-in altar was found. This feature was echoed across the tops of all the temples found at the site. It also bears a striking similarity to the architecture found in the altars and temples of Palenque. While Temple 1 is the largest and a vast cache of funerary objects were found in all three temples, Temple 2 is of particular note as it holds the remains of a particularly well-preserved shaman by the name of Apakaltan. Due to the similarity of the objects found in the burial to those used by modern Mayan shamans and the inscriptions on those very objects led archaeologists to speculate that this was an important religious figure. Apakaltan was found with engraved conch pendants and stingray barbs totaling 260 glyphs, covering 14 years of the believed 40 that made up the religious leader's life. Of the 260 glyphs, only 80 have been successfully translated by epigraphers, and these glyphs reference self-sacrifice, bloodletting rituals, and describe events where Apakaltan was accompanied by rain deities. But how do we know for certain that Apakal was indeed a shaman? Well, to answer this, we turn to David Friedel, who has written extensively on the origins of the Mayan and Olmec religious beliefs and political structures. He conveys the following information in one of his many research articles. Within the Mayan society, there existed Hamen, or Hacedores, who had ancient and inherited knowledge and utilized a series of sacred objects to commune with the ancestors, gods, and spirits that existed past death. These Hamen, through the utilization of their trances and interpretation of signals given to them by magic stones or crystals known as Sastun, managed to identify and heal the ailments affecting an individual or an entire community. They served as a vital link between the village and the natural forces. These holy men accumulated knowledge passed down through them by previous holders of the positions, and so the eldest of the Hamen were believed to have the greatest abilities to petition human needs to the ears of the gods. The ritual objects utilized by the Hacedores in the practice of divination were known as Am, according to the Yucatan sources. A person who utilized these objects was participating in Eats, that is to say the act of creation or magic itself. Combining the two, we get Eats Am, which refers to a person who manipulates the magical world. The glyph for Itzam appears on Temple 2 
and this coupled with the many ritual objects found alongside the body make it clear that the person entombed was considered magical by the population that buried him. With this information, we can also unlock the other half of the cosmic bird, Itzamye, to come to its full translation as the macaw who participates in magical creation. This association with magic went both ways, and Itzam practitioners, the Hamen, were often considered agents or conduits of this magical force of nature. Engraved on the ritual items buried alongside the dead Hamen are dates and activities performed by Apakal, dated between 765 and 777 CE. These activities were yearly rituals performed during the spring equinox when the head priests would practice bloodletting in the presence of a number of gods, including many aspects of the rain god Chak, the Mayan death god Chan Wutcham, and the dedicated patron goddess specific to Comalcalco, whose name has not yet been recovered. These annual ceremonies were undergone in March, which was the driest season in the Chontalpa region, and it is believed these were petitions for water to the different representations of Chak and other related deities. The translation of one of these engraved glyphs states that in 771 CE, Apakaltan realized two ceremonies, one on the 2nd of January, which has no other action associated with the inscription, but another on the 22nd of January of the same year, where Apakaltan is said to have walked with a god named Zihom Chak, undoubtedly one of the many facets of Chak the Mayans believed in. What's more interesting is that Apakaltan is buried standing up, likely meant to represent a mature maize plant, thus symbolizing that the shaman would continue speaking to the gods on behalf of the village in death, much as he did so in life. Friedel concludes that these actions were likely taken in order to maintain power in the superstitious world of Mayan politics. By recognizing, respecting, and adhering to the cosmological cycles, the priests and other Mayan leaders attempted to project a control over these cycles, or at least a positive communion with the forces that governed it, in order to project the same power over the citizens. Being that Comalcalco was a maize cult, the bloodletting of the priests was a very powerful symbol to petition for rain and thus a good harvest. In this way, the leaders of the Mayan world would maintain a grip on both the minds of the public and the reins of political power. Although it did not seem to hold the same importance as its much larger counterpart, the East Acropolis must have been built before the advent of brick buildings in the city as there are no brick buildings visible in this complex. It too is aligned to the cardinal directions on a main axis very close to that of the North Plaza. We are not very sure of its function. It was likely the seat of administrative power before the Grand Acropolis was built, however not much stucco work or decorations have survived the years, leaving us with very little to work with. Likely the most important feature of Comalcalco, and the most impressive, is known as the Grand Acropolis which sits on an artificial platform measuring 35 kilometers or 115 feet high, just south of the North Plaza. Within this complex, we see Temple 7 protruding from the northern edge with another double-roomed altar constructed at its top. This temple is also known as the Temple of the Seated Chieftains, thanks to the two seated figures modeled in stucco, which decorate the upper tiers of the temple's sloped sides. 
Its entrance faces south, towards the plaza of the Grand Acropolis. Along the same section of platform, and just east of the Temple of the Seated Chieftains, we find Temple Six, also known as Andrew's Temple, or the Temple of the Mask, thanks to a discovery by archaeologist Roman Piña Chan, who discovered a mask belonging to the Mayan sun god, Kinich Ahua, engraved within the structure. The mask is available to view to the public, and this temple also shows a helpful example of the two distinct periods of construction held in Comalcalco, as the upper structure had mud walls, which were later replaced by brick. To the southeast of the Grand Acropolis, we see the sunken patio group, which holds some residential buildings and the last of our three temples. Temples 4, 5, and 9 are found within this group on the southern boundary with Temple 4 known as the Stucco Tomb, since archaeologists claim that this served as a vaulted entrance to an inner funeral chamber covered by a central staircase which was decorated with stucco figures. Temple 5 is located to the west of Temple 4 and has the same features, likely serving a similar function of funeral and burial rites but has since collapsed and is found in a very unstable condition. West of Temple 5 was Temple 9, which can be found situated above the Tomb of the Nine Lords of Night, which is a tomb decorated with nine stuccoed figures, who might have represented rulers or important religious leaders, but the figures have since been badly eroded, so we cannot say for certain who exactly is being depicted on the stucco. We also see another connection to the number 9, given the number of lords that adorn this tomb. We can also find the overgrown remains of a ballgame court on the western side, past the plaza of the Grand Acropolis. Located in the center of the Grand Acropolis, we find the palace, a massive feature that holds some of the biggest arches in the Mesoamerican world. Eight of these would have led into the palace itself, with the main gallery oriented north to south and measuring 2.5 meters, or 8.2 feet. Not even Yao Ming would have had to duck down to enter this chamber. A wall with five openings separates this room with a parallel one on the southern end, and this room had nine bays which exited to the rear of the palace, again that number nine appearing, and this entrance led to the sunken patio group and the temples five, four, and nine on the southern end of the Grand Acropolis's terrace. The roof of this great palace has since collapsed, however the famous Mayan Corbel Vault is still hinted at by the remaining walls and bricks. A Corbel Vault is a form of arch construction that utilized increasingly larger slabs of stone stacked on top of smaller ones in order to provide the supports for the roof and create the entrance to the building. I will put up some pictures on the website, but a quick Google search of real-life examples of Corbel vaults and you should be imagining exactly what it is I'm talking about. In the southern part of the terrace that the Grand Acropolis sits on, there are various structures arranged on sidewalks which delimit a sunken patio bordered to the north by residential structures, to the west by the palace, to the south by Temple 4, and to the east by a complex of buildings known as Structure 3. This sunken patio measures 23 meters or 75 feet long and 11 meters or 36 feet wide. Its most interesting feature is actually found underneath with a system of aqueducts which connected to open canals allowing for the drainage of water from the upper buildings and walkways found in the palace and grand acropolis. 
This meant that the monumental, administrative, and elite residential buildings were accompanied by a vast drainage network that stretched under the entire city. This drainage system was made up of clay cylinders molded into the form of tubes, which would carry the waste and rainwater out of the city. It would appear the Mayans of Tabasco dispelled the notion that these sites were primitive in any way. Instead, they displayed a level of complexity and sophistication that is not unsimilar to the Romans in Italy and the Tang Chinese who were operating around relatively similar time periods. In my intro to Comalcalco, I mentioned Pibnaz, which were buildings constructed out of two parallel vaulted bays, the outer bay forming a vestibule, or ceremonial entrance room, while the inner bay held the sanctuary space within, closely matching the Palenque style once again. They functioned primarily as steam bathhouses, but it may have symbolized much more to the Mayans and represented an underground home undoubtedly considered a holy place with connections to the sacred Xibalba, the Mayan underworld. These small enclosures would have also been associated with the practice of magic due to the identification of one glyph, kinul, which held the meaning of enchanting, bewitching, and conjuring. This glyph was primarily utilized by the city of Palenque, and so again we see the influence of Palenque in the architecture, city layout, burial practices, and now glyph selection. Further proof of Palenque's influence is the decorations found around these pipnas, depicting images of clouds, serpents made of clouds, and the great cosmic bird Itzam Ye, who identified this place as the site of manifested Itz, or magic, as we have already discussed according to the work by Dr. Friedel. We have also spoken about some of the gods that the Comalcalcans revered, such as Kinich Ahua, the sun god, whose mass can be found in Temple 6, as well as the rain god Chak and his many facets. Ixchel you will recognize from the Chontal episode as the goddess of the moon, and we have a new name for the death god, Kisin, while Ek Chua was a deity meant to represent commerce, a very Comalcalcan activity due to their proximity to the many rivers that connected the jungled interior with the coast and greater pre-Hispanic markets. There also exists a trio of Palenquen creation gods whose history is intimately tied to that of the great city itself, so we will have to save those discussions for another time, likely when we talk about Palenque during the Chapin run of episodes. But it is here that we have reached the approximate midway point of the episode, so if you would like to take a break, I won't blame you. I will try to include these little breakpoints in the longer episodes for those who like shorter chunks, as one very esteemed listener suggested I try. From here on, we will move to talk about the historical events of Comalcalco and the rest of the archaeological sites in Tabasco. We won't be going into as much detail on these next sites as we did with Comalcalco, who was given such an extensive overview to present an example of how a classical Maya city may have been laid out and looked like. So with that in mind, let's move into the historical and see how these various cities fared when interacting with one another. Comalcalco's ideal location for trade would produce a golden age for the knotted sky city. The peaks of this golden age would be reached between the years of 600 and 700 CE. For while the geographical location along the banks of the Grijalva tributaries gave Comalcalco a strategic advantage over the mercantile traffic flowing in and out of the Gulf of Mexico, 
it inevitably brought the rising state into conflict with other regional powers at the end of 649 CE, specifically a war with Tortuguero and Palenque, two Mayan cities located to the southeast. Palenque, which we have already met, had long since been established by the Zeltals and by this time was a regional powerhouse that ruled the lands of northern Chiapas and had begun setting its sights on expansion towards both the Pacific and Atlantic coasts by way of the river systems they sat along. Tortuguero, meanwhile, has a bit of a disputed origin. While some say they are of Chontal Mayan descent, other theories claim they may have been Olmec refugees from whatever calamity consumed La Venta around 400 BCE. Whatever the truth, they would end up settling in the modern municipality of Macuspana, which, if you pulled out a map, is located directly between Comalcalco to the northwest and Palenque to the southeast. The Tortugueros would elect to side with the Highlanders of Palenque in the socio-political power struggles that would ensue. This alliance would be formalized by the marriage in 626 CE of the Palenquen ruler Kinich Janab Pakal, who was known to historians as Pakal the Great, to the Tortuguero princess, Lady Zakbu Ahaus, known to archaeologists as La Reina Roja, or the Red Queen. This consolidation of power would create a much sought-after buffer state to the north for the expansionist-minded rulers of Palenque, an expansion Pakal the Great would continue with great success. While we are on the subject, it is interesting to mention how Pakal's name has proven quite the headache for Mayan archaeologists. Kinit Janab Pakal is one of the most extensively written about leaders in Palenque histories, yet there is no consensus on what the word Janab translates to. Kinich we have seen before and means radiant as it refers to the sun god Kinich Ahua, while Pakal has been confidently translated to mean shield. But Janab has stubbornly eluded archaeologists for years. One suggestion comes from the logogram for this word, that is the image that it depicts, of a four-spoked propeller surrounded by a dotted circle. This similarity to flower motifs in Mayan iconography led early researchers to conclude that it might have meant flower. Another suggestion also related to the shape of the glyph itself makes the claim that it may have been the name of a raptorial bird, given that the Palenquenos considered themselves closest to the heavens due to the elevation of their population centers, and we have already established how they revered a great cosmic bird, perhaps a macaw, so there is some precedent to this theory. However, no such word for flower or any specific kind of bird exists in the modern Mayan language or any of its derivatives even remotely related to the word Janab. One final possibility is that the name is written with an underspelling. Underspelling was a practice of the Mayan scribes to leave out the phonetic spelling of words in certain syllables featuring what they considered weak consonants in a sort of hieroglyphic shorthand. This is not uncommon as the language was riddled with complexity as we have already mentioned, forcing the scribes to take any shortcuts they could when writing. If this were the case, however, it is not clear what sounds would be missing from the full pronunciation of the word. Summed up best by Stanley Gwenter in his article on the tomb of Pakal the Great, quote, Unfortunately, if underspelling is involved, it is not clear what sounds are missing from the full pronunciation of Janab. 
There are no words similar to Janab that have yet been found that denote either a type of flower or bird. Only if we discover a rare example of a phonetic rendering of this word where a scribe provided a full spelling will we be able to determine whether underspelling is involved. End quote. The two rival cities to Comalcalco, Palenque and Tortuguero, thus tied by marriage, began to encroach north on Comalcalco territory. Eventually, one Balam Ahaus, lord of Tortuguero, father of Zakbu Ahaus, the Red Queen, and father-in-law of Pakal the Great, attacked Hui Chan directly, which at the time was led by a man named Och Balam. According to a stella which recorded the aftermath, the battle was a bloodbath that ended in favor of the Tortuguero-Palenque coalition. With the defeat of Hoi Chan, its leader, Och Balam, would ritually be sacrificed by Balam a house. Comalcalco would pay a yearly tribute to Tortuguero and adopt the conquering city's glyph, a symbolic gesture akin to bending the knee. While the victorious leader, Balam a house, installed his son as the next puppet governor of the newly conquered city. As mentioned, Tortuguero still sits in Macuspana and recently came into relevancy by the discovery of another December 21, 2012 inscription. Unfortunately, the site is not open to the public due to its advanced state of degradation, mostly caused by human actions, such as grave robbing and the unfortunate building of a cement factory right on top of its remains. However, Comalcalco is very open and has a rich display of artwork, including the stela depicting the war between Comalcalco and the Tortuguero-Palenque alliance. These events also go a long way to explaining why Comalcalco and Palenque hold so many similarities as far as city plan, architecture, and glyph usage. And perhaps it was this event too which precipitated in the three added tiers to the top of Temple 1 in the northern plaza a way to project to the conquered city that there was a new sheriff in town, and further explained why the city also adopted a new glyph in 649 CE on all their official records, a glyph representing the royal family of Bacal, the name most associated with the ancient dynasties of the kingdoms of Palenque and Tortuguero. Moves which would have found support from the new Tortuguero rulers, who by this point were basically a Vichy government nothing more than an extension of Pakal the Great and Palenque's expansionist aims. With Comalcalco firmly in grasp, Palenque power swelled and nearly all trade moving through Tabasco, Chiapas, and Oaxaca would feel the presence of Pakal. So let's discuss some of these other sites that would have been on the sidelines or recruited into the conflicts between the great powers of the classical Western Mayan world. Tortuguero, whose ancient name is thought to have been Bakul, we have already mentioned was located in Macuspana and is now the site of a cement factory. So if you would like to visit it, simply drive along the highways of Mexico, where it has since been dispersed. Cynical jokes aside, this site was located on the trade routes that were utilized by Comalcalco and Palenque during their rise to power and influence. Situated a mere 35 kilometers or 21 miles from Palenque, the city was easily pulled into the Palenque orbit. Its name comes from the nearby Tortuguero Hill, as its original name, as we have already said, was likely Bakul. The Tortuguero Golden Age was thus intertwined with that of Palenque and its governor, Balam Ahaus, belonged to the Palenquean royal family. This is the same Balam Ahaus who captured Oxbalam 
in December 649 CE and sacrificed the defeated Comalcalcan leader, thus taking control of the great coastal city in the name of Tortuguero, but ultimately Palenque. In the year 711 CE, Palenque would face an assault by the kingdom of Tonina to their south, and their geopolitical aims would shift. Tonina is a Chapin Mayan city most active in this, the late classical. Its name means the House of Stone, or the much grander sounding place where statues are raised in honor of time. And Tonina had recently captured the cities of Yaxchilan and Piedras Negras, found to the east of Palenque. This apparent encirclement, coupled with Tonina's location, 10 kilometers or a mere 6 miles to the south, rendered this house of stone a very real threat to the city of the serpent. This would effectively snap the Palenquen gaze away from the gulf to the north to focus instead on the jungles to the south, removing Tortuguero from the list of priorities, which resulted in a slow and steady decline for the buffer state until it was finally fully abandoned by the 13th century. As we move into the eastern part of Tabasco and into the municipality of Jonuta, we find the site of Jonuta, spelled with an X, although it is pronounced the same as the municipality, which is now spelled with the Latinized J. It displays two signs of distinct phases of occupation, the first between 600 and 1000 CE, and the second between 1100 and 1350 CE. This site experienced an age of splendor when it served as a Chontal waypoint, mainly via the Candelaria River, that feeds into the Laguna de Terminos, and connected the Potonchan markets with those of Chicalango on the Gulf Coast and the communities in Chacan Putum, which had come under Chontal control following the campaigns of Amecatutulxihue against the Itza of the Yucatan in 948 CE. Thus, a little puma or Chontal province was established and given the name of Jonuta, with an X, and would have fallen under the Tabaco's jurisdiction. It came to represent one of the three most important Chontal cities, the other two being Potonchan in northern Tabasco and the second, Itzamacanac in Chacan Putum, modern-day southern Campeche, which is the most likely candidate for the fabled Putun-founded city of Acalan. The Putuns, if you remember, are those ethnic Maya predecessors to the Chontal, who founded the city of the Canoe people. Most of these events we covered in episode 4, if you need a quick refresher. Due to the archaeological finds, we can tell that the inhabitants excelled at working with ceramics, producing finely crafted cups, plates, jugs, water basins, and artistic figurines which they traded, likely producing a livable income for some of the locals. In 1597, the Spanish decided to relocate the population of Chicalango off the coast of the Gulf of Mexico and into the now-abandoned site of Jonuta, changing the X to a J in the process. This appears to have been done for the same reason the capital of Tabasco was moved from Santa Maria de la Victoria, previously Potonchan, to Villahermosa, further inland in order to better defend it against the constant pirate attacks that plagued Atlantic ports during the 16th century. If we move south from Jonuta, we enter the municipality of Balancan, which hosts Mayan sites along the Usumacinto River Basin, which, as we have mentioned before, would have been fought over by regional superpowers such as Palenque, as well as a few others from the classical we will tentatively begin introducing into the story. 
all of which were contemporaries and either rivals, allies, or pawns at one point or another of Palenque, and the three unlucky sites caught in the crossfire, all located in Balancan, the sites of Moral Reforma, Santa Elena, and Aguada Fénix. Starting with the most well-excavated, Moral Reforma, we find a moderately-sized Mayan city, serving the hopefully by now familiar role most riverside cities held of controlling and facilitating trade along its waters, which it achieved to great success. This would draw the eyes of the two largest fish in the immediate pond, those of Palenque and one of our new players in the classical, Calakmul, a Mayan city located in southern Campeche that controlled the river systems connecting the highlands of Guatemala to the Campechan lowlands and whose rivers fed into the Laguna de Terminos. Calakmul would serve a formidable opponent to Palenque, and the two would clash incessantly in the early classical during their formative years, Calakmul winning the early rounds of the war, but ultimately failing to outlast its hated rival. Moral Reforma would try to navigate this political minefield, most notably during the reign of one Mawan Hol, or Falcon Skull who was born on the 17th of January, 656 CE. As the son of the previous ruler, he came into power on the 7th of May, 661 CE, at the ripe ruling age of five years old. The boy would perform the tying of the belt around his head, a belt inscribed with the words Calhoun, meant to signify kingship and establish him as the ruler of Moral Reforma, which was currently under the Palenquen yoke. However, the following year, Calakmul would draw up an alliance with Piedras Negras, another rival to Palenque, found in the modern-day department of Petén in Guatemala. In early 662 CE, Calakmul positioned Piedras Negras to attack another Palenquen allied site in the area, and one we will talk about next, Santa Elena, which was located south of Moral Reforma. This would prove a successful move as the Calakmul-Piedras Negras alliance would overwhelm and push out the Palenquen influence in the area, and at Moral Reforma, the governor of Calakmul, one Yuknum Chen II, also mentioned as Yuknum the Great by the sources, would attend the second tying of the belt ceremony of Falcon Skull, solidifying the submittal of the Moral ruler to the Calakmul dominion. When we next hear Falcon Skull, we find him in his early adulthood, slowly testing his chains of Kalakmul rule. He would attain some military success of note in 687 and 689 CE, around the ages of 20 or 21, of which a stella was made to commemorate the victorious event. This stella, along with other artifacts of the area, can be found at the Museum of Archaeology in Balancan, and the translations of which are where most of our information on these events comes from. Eventually, the Kalakmul star would wane, and in 690 CE, it became embroiled in a mortal conflict with another of its rival superpowers, Tikal, which was located 195 kilometers, or 121 miles, to the south in northern Guatemala. This conflict simultaneously weakened Calakmul's grip on power while opening the door for Palenque to step back in as regional overlord and resulted in an unprecedented third ceremony of the tying of the belt, this time in the presence of the new king of Palenque, Kinich Khan Balam II, or Radiant Serpent Jaguar. 
the inscription on the stela mentioned that the ceremony took place in Palenque, meaning that the now adult lord of Reforma, Mawan Hol, was forced to make the trip to his new boss, a clear sign that the Palenquean power had not forgotten the young ruler's early vacillation and lack of loyalty. Eventually, the power of Palenque too would decline like Calakmul before it, a process initiated by its conflicts with Tonina in 711 CE, leaving Moral Reforma to forge its own path into the uncertain future, left to war and ally with its regional neighbors in the Usamacinto River Valley and weather the Mayan collapse storm that would soon come for them all. Before talking about some of those regional neighbors, I should mention that the Moral Reforma site is open to the public and notable for its double pyramid structures, classical ballgame court, and myriad of styles present in its architecture, bearing similarities to those found in many differing but contemporary sites, a sign of the multitude of influences that must have been exerted on it throughout the years. The site is a bit far from Villahermosa, nearly a three and a half hour drive. However, it is much closer to the Balancan municipal capital, where the Dr. José Gómez Panaco Museum is found. The museum hosts many items and inscriptions from this and other sites we have mentioned so far, as well as the others we will talk about very shortly. The other Mayan site in Balancan is Santa Elena, which unfortunately is currently closed to the public, but shares many similarities with Moral Reforma due to its similar size and political importance. While the original name of Moral Reforma has not yet been deciphered, we do know the site of Santa Elena was known as Huacab Ha, and would be another of these all-important waypoints situated along the Usamacinta trade arteries. The city would become the center of resistance to Palenque rule among the Usamacinta River Basin's peoples. Unfortunately, at that time, they were up against Kinich Janab Pakal, our friend Pakal the Great, who married the Tortuguero Red Queen, and in 659 CE would strike at the hearts of the conspirators by capturing the Lord of Santa Elena, one Nuun U Holchak, as well as various dignitaries from Pomona, another city we will talk about shortly, and Piedras Negras, who had been residing in Santa Elena when Pakal attacked with his forces. According to the sources, Pakal the Great would severely punish the ruling family of Wakab Ha, removing them from power, likely killing them, and installing a new royal family, one loyal to him and his Palenquean dynasty. The second such government whose installation he had overseen, coming ten years after his joint operation with Tortuguero, successfully removed Ochpalam from Comalcalco in 649 CE. This victory would only last three long years, and in 662 CE, the city was conquered by a resurgent and out-for-blood Piedras Negras, which removed the Palenquean influence from Santa Elena. The city would continue to trade hands various times with its perfect location for trade, also marking it as a perfect location for conquest. Located along the Rio San Pedro, a very important tributary to the Usamacinta, it is here that the archaeologist David Stewart identifies as the home of the Wa bird, an emblematic glyph best associated with the inscriptions found at Palenque and Piedras Negras, along with a few other sites. This glyph will be important when we talk about the Palenque royal family, but for now just know it was first found here, 
and came to represent a series of female rulers that ruled Palenque immediately before the ascension of Pacal the Great. There is no doubt that the Palenquean rulers had long been playing power politics in Tabasco to assert and at times reassert their control over this all-important trade artery of the Rio San Pedro, which led towards the central Mayan lowlands and connected to the Palenquean political rivals of Tikal in northern Guatemala. This Rio San Pedro corridor was also historically important as it would follow the route that Teotihuacan warlord Siach Kak, or Fire is Born, took when he conquered Tikal and Copan way back in 378 CE in the name of his Teotihuacano leader, a ruler named Spear Thrower Owl. This conquest would come before the fall of Teotihuacan in 550 CE and the Nahua migrations that followed, which we spoke about in episode 4. We will follow this conquest and others like it when we speak about Teotihuacan and the central Mexican city's projection of power over the greater Mesoamerican world. I mention it here as it does a good job of highlighting the reach and influence that Teotihuacan would have on their pre-Columbian neighbors. And also because the name Fire is Born is just way too cool a name to pass up any opportunity to share it with you. We will absolutely be returning to the adventures of Fire is Born and his boss, Spear Thrower Owl. Santa Elena, meanwhile, would consistently play pawn in these regional power struggles as an avenue for conquering cities to project their power over vast distances. The exact number of times Santa Elena would trade hands is not known, except that it was numerous and goes to show the struggles faced by some of these smaller Mayan polities. The final site found in Balancan is called Aguada Fenix, and while it has not exactly involved much in the classical, it is very notable for its unconfirmed claim as both the oldest and largest Mayan site ever discovered. Early dating efforts have dated the site to 1000 BCE, placing it earlier than Ceibal in Guatemala and Cuello in Belize, the current confident title holders for oldest Mayan city discovered. Sites we will discuss when we visit the Yucatan. If legitimate, this site could show the earliest shifts from a nomadic Mayan people to the sedentary city builders we are familiar with today. The potentially largest platform ever was hidden by the dense Tabascan jungle until it was discovered by anthropologist Takeshi Inomata from the University of Arizona and his team of scientists in 2017 through the utilization of aerial LIDAR, or light detection and ranging. What they detected was a massive platform measuring nearly 1,400 meters long, 400 meters wide, and 15 meters high, which is roughly 1,500 yards long, 400 yards wide, and 16 yards high, resulting in an impressive volume of 3.8 million cubic meters. To put all of those numbers in perspective, the base of the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt has a volume of 2.6 million cubic meters, thus placing this platform at Aguada Fenix as possibly the largest ancient construction of its kind in the world. We can imagine this platform served several ritual and social functions, allowing a large group of people to gather at once to participate in whatever socio-religious ritual or festival was being held by the community at that time. By 750 BCE, however, the site would be abandoned and nothing else would be built on top of the platform. 
the site does not seem to have engaged in much writing or stellar work, so we have no record as to what went on. There are signs of structures and buildings surrounding the site, but the dense Tabascan jungle has made any excavation or thorough survey of the zone next to impossible. Aguada Phoenix would likely still have been overtaken by the jungle had it not been rediscovered by Takeshi Inomata and his team from Arizona in 2017. So it shall be exciting to see what other discoveries this revolutionary archaeological survey method yields in the future. Now if we continue moving south of Balancan, we find ourselves in the municipality of Tenosique, and the last of our archaeological sites to learn about in the state, those of Pomona, Banjale, and San Claudio. Pomona was mentioned at least once already, and it is another of these middle-sized cities that participated as both pawn in the wars between the stronger regional powers of the Lake Classical and vital trade node along the river networks. Notably, in 790 CE, Pomona lost the war too and was conquered by Piedras Negras, whose subsequent victory Stella gives us some insight on this slightly obscure Mayan city. Pomona means House of the Copal, which was a tree resin utilized by the Maya in various capacities, ranging from medicinal to religious. It was also recently discovered that the original name of Pomona might have been Pakbul, but that was probably changed much like the city's official glyph during the many conquests that took place across the zone. Pomona is known as a dispersed type site, meaning the actual structures are located on hill and mountain summits with few buildings found in between these points. Like Moral Reforma, Pomona is open to the public and attached to the archaeological zone is the Pomona Site Museum where one can peruse the 120 or so unearthed pieces found on location. The site itself features various structures, including a few temples and a central plaza, much like the one found in Comalcalco. Pomona, as we have mentioned, was conquered and ruled by various other powers, much like Santa Elena, but it too engaged in a bit of conquering itself, for it actually held the next site we are going to talk about, Banjale, in much the same way Palenque, or Piedras Negras, held it. Panjale means reflection of water in Maya, and is also found on the banks of the Usamacinta, located directly at the opening to the canyon known as Boca del Cerro, the last mountain path the Usamacinta takes before feeding off into the Tabasco Plains below. Displaying two distinct periods of occupation arrayed along the natural terraces formed by the river's valley, in both cases, the constructions followed the natural topography of the land. Among the few buildings left standing, structure 16 is notable as a towering pyramid 30 meters high or nearly 100 feet tall with crumbling stairs leading to a collapsed tower at its summit. The name of this unique city was likely given to the way its structures might have reflected off the water to both the inhabitants sitting in their structures and any travelers entering into its territory. The site's location served a strategic importance to both trade and warfare, giving whoever held it control in and out of the region. It connected the highlands of Chiapas to those of the Guatemalan peoples all the way to the mountainous Maya of Belize. Its fortunes were intertwined with those of its immediate neighbors, such as Pomona and Santa Elena, 
and thus likely enjoyed a relative golden age during the late 8th century, as suggested by a stella from Pomona, dated to 770 CE, despite it also suggesting the nature of the relationship between Pomona and Panjale as boss and underling. The site is in poor condition due to the presence of a rock quarry nearby, along with extensive grave robbing. The site is also closed to the public, but is mentioned here as an example of the variety of sites found in Tabascan jungles, and it is mentioned in one of the Pomona Stella, but otherwise shows no major significant events as of yet. The final site of Tenosique is San Claudio, another medium-sized city similar to Moral Reforma and Santa Elena, which saw its heyday between 600 and 900 CE. The final site in Tenosique we will talk about is San Claudio, another medium-sized city similar to Moral Reforma and Santa Elena, which likewise saw its heyday between 600 and 900 CE. It too was part of the crucial trade networks that supplied all the cities and towns along the San Pedro River and other Usamacinto River tributaries. The site holds 94 stone constructions containing the usual suspects, pyramids, platforms that served religious and social functions, and ballgame courts arranged throughout five architectural groupings. We can also see hundreds of obsidian and flint tools of varying functions, and it seems San Claudio utilized the production of these items as its main trading commodity with the various traders that passed by its banks, similar to how the villagers of Jonuta would produce and trade their ceramics. One of the site's most curious features comes from its funerary practices. It wasn't out of the ordinary to bury the dead in Mayan cultures, why we saw a large burial site in Comalcalco, and know the Chocos also buried their dead. However, it was a little extraordinary to bury them directly below the floor of an actual domicile. However, in San Claudio, we find Structure 4, a building showing signs of occupation for over 200 years, with over 20 sets of human remains discovered right underneath the floor in the main living space. This is not unheard of, but also not a common practice for many pre-Columbian cultures. Perhaps another byproduct of the relative isolation some cities might have experienced, allowing them to experiment with social practices, similar to the way Greek cities had very different political systems. Or maybe this particular family was very attached to their dead relatives. Who's to know? Having described the last of the archaeological sites in Tabasco, active during the Classical, let's link everything back to the Zeltal and finish up with a quick description of the modern Zeltal and their language, as well as some cultural celebrations that take place in the regions that the Zeltal inhabit in present day. After the fall of Palenque, and the rest of the Mayan world for that matter, the Zeltal would disperse into the Chapin Highlands and continue their lives in relative isolation until the Spanish began their inexorable conquest of the continent, taking Chiapas in 1528 and founding the city of Ciudad Real, now called San Cristobal de las Casas. This would recast the Zeltal people into the classical role of conquered, with thousands of natives being forced to work in mines, mills, or plantations at the behest of their Spanish rulers. The Zeltal, however, would chafe under the Spanish rule and in 1712 rose up in rebellion along with the Zotzils and the next tribe on the docket, the Chols, 
who came to have populations in southern Tabasco, as well as northern Chiapas, including the territory the ancient Palenquins left behind whenever they left after the Mayan collapse. This rebellion was put down the following year, but the Zeltals were not done there, and in 1867 participated in the Caste War, a nationwide conflict that pitted the newly organized national Mexican forces against thoroughly disgruntled hordes of indigenous campesinos and commoners. The caste war would last until 1870, and the defeated Celtals were once again submitted to hard labor and political subjugation. The Celtals' socio-political issues continued to bubble at the rim and have recently spilled back over when in 1990 the socialist Zapatista movement resulted in the adoption of a unique political system known as Usos y Costumbres, or Customs and Habits. The aim of this system was to acknowledge and respect the indigenous authority, politics, and autonomy, meaning the communities are allowed to govern themselves with minimal federal or state government intervention. The system is not without its issues. For example, women have faced serious challenges to representation and holding positions of power. A recent case involved Cecilia Lopez, a native Celtal from Oxchuk, who in 2009 registered as a pre-candidate for the PAN political party, but had her name unceremoniously removed from the polls before any vote was cast. Despite these controversies, Usos y Costumbres perfectly represents the ongoing struggles and occasional gains of the native populations in Mexico since the arrival of the Spanish. To many of the indigenous natives, the creation of the Mexican nation was not their salvation. And as the systemic issues in society persisted, many Indios began to believe the Spanish soldier had merely been replaced by the federal soldier. And thousands would historically struggle and fight against the tide of progress to defiantly safeguard their long-held customs and way of life. Thankfully, through programs such as Pueblos Magicos, Las Lenguas Toman el Podio, the newly introduced Barrios Magicos, and various others, it does seem like efforts are being made in favor of this conservation of culture. Despite this, a very palpable distrust of the government has always been felt by the part of the indigenous tribes, a feeling the federal government would attempt to dispel through the use of such programs as usos y costumbres. Time will tell if these efforts yield any fruit. Having mentioned the program on native languages, Let's use the opportunity to segue neatly into a discussion of the Zeltal language. The Zeltals themselves are known as the Batsilope, those of the original word, who also refer to themselves as the Winik Atel, which means working men, while the Batsilicopes language is part of the Western Mayan language group, along with the Tzotzils, a tribe that also lives primarily in Chiapas and shares many other similarities with its lingual cousin. They make up the Zeltalen subdivision of Mayan languages and are estimated to have separated sometime around 1200 CE. The Zeltal languages also display similarities with other Western Mayan languages such as Chontal, Chol, Chuch, Tojolabal, Akatec, Hakaltec, Canjobal, and Motozintlec. These languages are all spoken by the tribes that lived closest to the Zeltals and are an indication of the reach the classical Zeltals had when ruling from their lofty seat at Palenque. Patzilcorpe consists of two main dialects, Highland, also called Oxchuk, 
which is helpfully also the name of a Zeltal community, and lowland, also referred to as Baja Conteco. Of the 111 municipalities that make up Chiapas, I know, quite the step up from the 17 we just went through in Tabasco, this language is concentrated in 20 of them, and there are just under 475,000 speakers since a census conducted a survey in 2010. These speakers are also divided regularly into northern, eastern, southern, and western Zeltals, with our Tabascan branch belonging to the western Zeltals, located primarily in the municipalities of Emiliano Zapata, Palancan, and Tenosique. Now let's head over to our friends in the government and listen to a snippet of Zeltal native language speaker Sebastian Guzman Luna, giving his language the stage in his speech at Las Lenguas Toman la Tribuna on September 30th, 2022. Tehbileja Sebastián Guzmán Luna, Lige Montaltas Lumskinal de Tenejapa Yunte Chiapas. Lumte Bantillas Ayanik Tota Zeltal, Hayebuk Ate Bayels Razonil de Bitil, Yastagia Yikitaikta Alel de Batil Cope. Here, like with our previous native speaker to the chamber, we hear Sebastián Guzmán Luna introduce himself and explain how he originates from Tenejapa, Chiapas, where they speak the language of Zeltal. He goes on to invite the representatives to visit the Tenejapan lands in order to experience all the biodiversity and culture they boast and protect to this day. The modern Zeltals occupy municipalities mostly located in Chiapas in a region known as Los Altos, or the Heights. The municipalities which are predominantly Zeltal are those of Ocosingo, Chilon, Altamirano, Tenejapa, and Oxchuk. The many mountainous peaks have an average height of 2,000 meters, or 6,500 feet, forcing the people to build terraces into the hillside in order to produce food. Life thus revolves around producing enough food to feed the family, focusing mainly on maize, beans, squash, chiles, and whatever amounts of wheat, cane, yuca, cotton, coffee, and other fruits and vegetables that the climate allows. This diet is supplemented by pigs, donkeys, goats, and domesticated fowl. The occasional lucky zeltal might land a large enough estate in which he can support the highly profitable business of ranching, an event which usually results in stronger commerce and communication lines with the surrounding remote villages, connecting them to the greater Mexican economy. A good number of native Zeltals engage in artistry consisting of weaving traditional Mayan styles, patterns, and designs in items such as blouses, sheets, tablecloths, curtains, napkins, and the famous Mayan huipil, essentially a shirt made with intricately embroidered patterns that are said to represent the cosmos. It is believed that the best textiles are found in Tenejapa, Pantelo, Larainzar, and Chenalo, all found in Chiapas, so we will give them a quick revisit when we get to the Chiapas State episodes. This artistry unfortunately does not always generate enough income, forcing many natives, typically the men, to seek supplemental income from the bigger cities and urban centers, while the women stay behind to tend to the house and the children. Often this is a culturally shocking experience, which can result in the Zeltal man rarely able to return home to his family or people. These native communities all have a similar city plan, with a town center surrounded by a smaller concentration of populations known as parajes, 
which are found scattered across the periphery of the major towns. The town then becomes the political, religious, and commercial center of all of the surrounding parajes and is central to the mechanisms of usos y costumbres. The town centers are further divided into barrios and calpules, and from my rough understanding, barrios would constitute where the common folk operate, while calpules were more revered or important sections of the town serving administrative or religious functions to the community. As with the Chocos, we can see that the Zeltal traditional marriages were arranged by the parents. However, these traditions seem to be changing with the modern day. Men typically married around the age of 18 and women at the age of 16. The groom was required to provide maize, beans, pigs, and alcohol to the bride's father. To the average groom, this bridal gift was considerable and made up 400 to 600 days waged labor. However, the bride's fathers were not emotionless tyrants and would allow the groom to pay it over a period of two or more years. Very reasonable fathers. Today's young people, it is reported, might just choose to elope, then, once married, return and ask to be pardoned, providing a smaller gift amounting to about 10 days' worth of labor. No report has yet to come out on the number of fathers who have been complaced with a 400 to 600% reduction in their expected gift. These marriages naturally produce children, and these children are raised in the household, rarely far from their mothers. They are carried in large shawls tied to the back as the mother goes about their household duties. As the child grows up, they begin taking on more caretaking responsibilities over the younger siblings, especially the girls. When the Zeltal children are old enough, they begin to accompany either their mother or father as they work on their respective duties supporting the family. Schools have begun to take on a larger role in the native Zeltal child's life and can now be found in most communities. Although it does introduce the indigenous children to national Mexican culture, history, and identity, they are rarely able to attend past the fourth grade, as it often requires them to travel outside of their small communities and into the head town. That is to say the town that serves as the political hub for the surrounding communities, or parajes. The child's absence at the home has a massive impact on the rest of the family, and this pressure to assist the household often leads to a limited impact of formal education on the region. In an effort to maintain their cultural traditions, memories, and identities, the modern Zeltal rigorously celebrate their rituals and religious celebrations. Every municipality, like in Tabasco, has its own calendar of festivals. Some examples are the celebrations for San Juan or St. John in Canuc and San Idefonso or St. Idefonsis in Tenejapa, the town where our native speaker Sebastián Guzmán Luna, who spoke at the Chamber of Deputies in Mexico City, is from. One of the most important and symbolic celebrations is the Carnaval de Tenejape and Oxchuk, whose entire aim is to preserve the indigenous act of ritual through the practices of playing, dancing, joking, and engaging in irony. The significance of these actions is intertwined with the sense of community felt by the Zeltal, and a subversion of the natural state of a person is observed through an adopted duality of a male and female identity taken on by some of the celebrants. Half woman and half man, this subversion of the status quo is only tolerated while the festival lasts, and the festival characters spend the entire week leading up to the festival, teasing the locals, playing pranks, and generally getting up to some good old-fashioned mischief. 
the men are transformed into maruchas, or marias, who wear typical zeltal dresses and quench their thirst by drinking copious amounts of posh, which they can oftentimes distribute to the onlookers, all while sitting in circular rows in the middle of the town plaza. Posh is another of our growing list of ceremonial liquors, along with pozol and guarapo. Made out of corn, sugarcane, and wheat, the drink is very emblematic of this Chiapas Highland region. Another aspect of this festival is the Toro de Petate, an event where one or several villagers dress as toros or bulls and are farcically put on trial, with the villagers accusing the bulls of all the year's sins and vices. The crowd then condemn the guilty bulls to death, a punishment which is meted out with similar whimsy and pageantry. Throughout the carnival, we see the subversion and ridicule of the established order and authorities. This was a chance for the town to cut loose and let down its collective hair. The maruchas run around instigating the crowd, speaking vulgarly and hurling insults every which way. Much like the cross-dressing aspects of this festival, these crude actions were not to be repeated outside the context of the festival, further cementing this celebration as a social kind of purging an opportunity to release all the negative emotions built up throughout the year in a positive manner through joking, dancing, and ironies. For our last topic today, we will be going back to Southern Tabasco for the Carnaval de Tenosique, a must-attend event held in the municipal capital city of Tenosique de Piño Suárez, located 75 kilometers or 46 miles southeast of the capital and held between the months of January and February. While the celebration isn't directly of Zeltal origin, it is celebrated closest to the region where the ancient Zeltal operated and modern people currently reside, so we will include it here and now in this episode. The most important part of this three-day carnival is known as La Danza del Pocho. El Pocho is a malignant god or being representing negative human impulses and vices, who is meant to be defeated by the participants of the festival. The entire festival itself is a symbolic purification of man in his eternal fight between good and evil. During this celebration of pre-Hispanic cultures, the participants throw flour at one another and dance in the streets to pre-Columbian flute and percussion instruments while dressed in fantastical and strange outfits. The men wear white capes with grass skirts, and the women wear typical Tabascan dresses, and some wear a decorative mat on their back. All the participants wear a hat with banana leaves and camellia flowers, with the iconic bright pink flowers matching perfectly with the red handkerchiefs, typical of Tabascan cultural and religious festivals. The men all wear wooden masks, similar to those worn by dancers in the Baila Viejo and Danza del Caballito. However, here they can be found in a multitude of designs and colors, more reminiscent of La Danza de David y Goliath and their wide array of characters. In this festival, there are three sets of characters who participate in the actual ritual. The first being the cojoes, or men of corn pulp, who offend el pocho by their very existence. Dancing through the streets in their extravagant outfits, they carry long, hollowed sticks filled with seeds or beans, which they use as rain sticks, going around and invoking the sound of rain to entice water out of the clouds in the sky to feed their crops. Joyously and boisterously, they go through the crowd telling jokes, pulling pranks, 
laughing, and all around spreading cheer and merriment to any in attendance, acting much like the Maruchas of Chiapas act during that carnival, and all under the disapproving gaze of El Pocho. Their headdresses and skirts are a clear indication of their allegiance to the forces of growth, nature, and life, conflicting with the negative aspects of existence meant to be personified by the evil Pocho. Las Pochoveras are the women's characters and begin the festival as heralds or priestesses of El Pocho, carrying a red handkerchief adorned with tulips and camellias representing the malevolent entity's flag. They perform traditional dances for the audience, yet remain completely silent of their performances in stark contrast to the loud and spirited cojoes. The final character in the ensemble are los jaguares, or the jaguars, who dress up, like their name suggests, as jaguars who have descended on the land by order of El Pocho to destroy the corn-pulped men, a tale which has connections to Aztec and Mayan creation myths, where various iterations of the earth are destroyed by different cataclysms. In one such event, the current earth's inhabitants were devoured by jaguars that fell from the sky, sent by the gods in anger. It also shares aspects with La Danza del Tigre, which was banned by the Catholic priests for its sacrificial elements, but likewise features jaguars as heralds of the gods. Eventually, the jaguars and their pochovera guardians are moved by the cojores, these men of corn pulp and their merriment, and through the power of song and dance, turn on their malignant master. All three groups then lead a procession of the people through the streets, singing and dancing along the way. Together they arrive at a pyre and defeat El Pocho by lighting him in flames on the last day of El Carnaval, always on a Tuesday. For any who wish to experience the Burning Man of Tabasco, the dates are the days celebrating San Sebastián, typically the 20th of January, or whichever date falls closest to that Sunday, with the festivities typically going on for three days, culminating with the burning of El Pocho on Tuesday. A final superstition-driven act is performed in which the dancers undress in the same place they started in in order to pick back up their steps. The superstition goes that any who fail to do so will be dead before the next carnival begins. Morbid for sure, but definitely a good way to ensure your dressing rooms are clean after the celebration is over. And with that final celebration out of the way, we come to the end of our episode. We covered the mythological origins of Votan and his Votanides and discussed the early movements of the Zeltals. We also discussed some of the political clashes engaged in by the cities and societies of the classical period in the Mayan jungles of Tabasco. The pre-Hispanic Zeltal would exist in their militaristic theocracy seated at Palenque for close to 800 years, beginning their cities at the end of the pre-classical in the first century CE and taking on all comers until the Mayan collapse saw them fall at the close of the 9th, opening the door for other groups of tribes to come in and rule in the vacuum left behind by the mighty people of Votan and their contemporaries. Warfare and bloodshed was the order of the day, and we have recounted some of these conflicts in the previous episodes. Please do not feel intimidated by the amount of names and dates I may have just presented. There will be plenty of time to put everything together in a nice, neat timeline. So for now, keep getting familiar with some of the places and figures that will be reoccurring, such as Palenque, Calakmul, Tikal, Tonina, and Piedras Negras, or characters such as Pakal the Great, the Nahua, and the Tetihuacanos, 
and the differences between the classical Maya and the post-classical Mayan worlds. We also discussed the more modern Zeltals and some of the rituals that are practiced in their neck of the stifling jungle. While we could talk about these tribes and their differences between the ages all day, let's end here as we look to the Spanish future that will soon encompass all of our discussion. So we will see you all in the next episode, where we will jump time periods again and see the official arrival of the Spanish, which ended the post-classical period and began the colonial period, and hopefully manage to squeeze in another tribe while we're at it. And so, until then, my friends, and be sure to share the podcast if you are enjoying it, and do visit the website at thehistoriesofmexico.com for some supplemental information on the previous episodes. Thank you for listening. Gracias, y que viva bien. Adios, and goodbye, for now.